Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show, James Briding, founder and CEO of SA Nations and author of Too Small to Fail, why small nations outperform larger ones and how they're reshaping the world. Uh, James, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you for having me, Richard. So congratulations uh, on the book. Uh, Who are these small nations that are too small to fail? Yeah, it's, um, well, there's eight of them. So it's uh, Denmark, Finland, Sweden, Netherlands, Ireland, uh, Switzerland, Singapore, um, Israel. So hopefully I got them all. And I, I suppose, I mean, one of the things that you're kind of trying to show in this uh, in the book is that these nations have an impact and a success level that is perhaps belies the, uh, what we might think of because of their size. No, that's right. I think um, I try to explain in the book that I think that um, economic power and maybe not political power, but I think economic power is, is decoupled from size and you're seeing this cluster of very small countries that have been extra, you know, just ex- extraordinarily successful. And, and in part because they're exposed to exogenous forces and, and therefore they must be more adaptive and, and indeed more experimental. So I, I think because of that, they're, they're sort of showing us the way. I mean, it's, it's interesting reading through the book how often uh, these countries seem to be addressing what we might describe as very 21st century uh, problems, whether it's healthcare in Singapore, uh, Denmark's environmental policies, even bringing it right up to date with Israel and the vaccine. These are, these are very much issues of the day, aren't they? They are. That's right. And uh, I think... Um I think, as I mentioned, they're, they're just they're kind of exposed to these forces that are exogenous, but also the political forces within the country. There's, you know, there, there's a probably a, a, a much more acute debate, much more honest debate that's going on, almost to the point of anarchy in some of these countries. But um, because of that, you have uh, more extensive degrees of deliberation, and of course, people are very concerned about these issues, whether it's climate, um, pandemics, immigration healthcare, etc. I mean, all of those things that you've mentioned there, immigration, healthcare, the pandemic, uh, and so on, these are things that people are worried about in big nations as well. What, what is it that is specific about the small nations, how they think about it, and the solutions that they're coming up with? And what is it about them being small that makes them able to deal with these problems apparently in an effective way? Well, I think... Uh I think, first of all, the the signal-to-noise ratio is just much more favorable in these small countries. So I think that, you know, intermediation, discovery of information, intermediation of information is is better. I think that because of the, the degrees of separation are much more narrow than you have in, in larger countries. So if you, you know, you have this famous sort of um, degrees of separation experiment where in the United States you can go from New York to Seattle I think with a, a, a 6.3 average connections. And in the case of these small countries, the average number of connections are 2.2. So it's just a much more immediate, the, the feedback loops are much, much more narrow. And since there's, there's fewer, the linkage of information is, is, is so narrow, it's also much more a- accurate, which I think is one fact, factor that's, that's quite important. I think also these, these countries have what I call the, kind of what, what you might describe as the, the marshmallow test, that 
that you, you sort of see with children that, you know, if, if you postpone gratification, that you know, ultimately that's much better for you. And, and I think um, in these countries, they're, they're, they're much better at dealing with those sorts of trade-offs where it may require satis- uh, sacrifice initially, but ultimately that pays off. And, and if you see situations like climate or pension funds, et cetera, those are precisely the areas that lend themselves to, you know, kind of kicking the can and postponing things and until it's, it's in some cases, it's just too late to do anything about it. And I think these small countries are just much more in tune to the, you know, they have the ability to actually postpone this gratification and, and make the necessary sacrifices. And is, is it a sense that because those connections are fewer, that it's easier to build consensus? Yeah. No, I, I think, you know, as I mentioned, the, the feedback loops, it's just the feedback system is, is much is much narrower, much more frequent. The, the, the amount of contact people have with each other um, is more frequent. So there's a lot more opportunity, much a lot more data points either to affirm trust or betray trust. And, and, and since these degrees of separation are so, so much narrow and the frequency of, of dealings with people is, is so much higher, um, it's, it's much more difficult to sort of fool people and, and to mislead people into um, fake news and things. So, and I think because of this, you have, you have a higher degree of social trust, which is really important because, you know, trust is a, you can kind of think, of it, think about it as friction. If you, you know, the, the less trust you have, the more friction you have in a system, which of course inhibits trade, but it also inhibits, um, you know, intermediating consensus and things. So, Is there a danger that we end up cherry picking, do you think? I mean, if we take a a famous example, uh, Singapore is um, somewhere that's greatly admired for for the way that it deals with healthcare, but obviously not so much when it comes to civil liberties, for example. Yeah, no. I mean, well, first of all, the, the 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 study was about excellence. So we, you know, we were looking at things that really work well. So that was the whole purpose. We weren't doing a sort of a scientific study of just a looking at a cross section of of random cases. We were actually trying to focus on on countries or in, in instances, particular social policies that, that have achieved a, le- a level of excellence. So we were kind of looking for the for the iPhones of this world. And then trying to say, well, you know, if, if that can happen and that works, maybe, you know, progress is about finding something that works and then um, reverse engineering or replicating. And that's what, that's the way it's always been, whether it was the iPhone or the wheel. So we were looking at um, trying to find the best healthcare system or the best pension fund system. So the Dutch happened to have the best pension fund system and the uh, Singapore, as you mentioned, has a healthcare system which achieves superior outcomes at about 25% of the cost of the U.S. system. So, for me, it was very interesting to to try to identify these areas of excellence and trying to then see whether something could be learned from those. So yes, we, it was in fact cherry picking. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting balance, isn't it? Because as, as you make clear in the book, it's not just that these successful countries uh, happen to be small. There are uh, many small nations, you point out, that uh, that struggle. Haiti, Zimbabwe, for example. So, so where is that balance between success and smallness, do you think? Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, coming back to your point, it's 
it's quite a diverse section of uh, of countries. So you have you know ancient countries like Switzerland, you know by by nation formation standards, or Denmark. You have very new countries like Singapore and Israel, which are less than you know, 50 years old or more or less. Uh, you have turnaround countries like Ireland, which which used to be you know considered to be you know sort of the backwater of Europe, and and now they're among the most successful um, countries in Europe. Um, you, you know, you have, you have countries that used to be parts of great empires like the Netherlands and, and, and Denmark, and now they've downsized or right-sized to much smaller countries. So there's a, you know, and then you have countries that are Catholic or, or Jew, having, you know, the Jewish faith, uh, Confucius as their underlying value system, or, you know, Lutheranism or Calvinism. So, so there's quite a big diversity of different countries that, um, that are among the most successful countries. I th- and I think that's very encouraging for any country, any small country or any large country, to know that there are lots of different roads to Rome. So... But as you say, there's um, you know there's there's successful large countries, there's there's unsuccessful small and large countries. So um, being small is 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 in of itself not sufficient. It's uh, it's one particular aspect. One of those aspects that draw that uh, some of these uh, some of these small countries share and seem to draw strength from, uh, you say, is being underdogs. That uh, and in particular, they often have experienced a shock very often, including in even in how they come into being. That uh, Singapore, Ireland, Israel, for example. Yeah, so I called the book too small to fail because I think vulnerability is actually one of the virtues of these. They've turned this into a virtue in most of these countries, and and as you say, you know whether it's Israel or Finland being trapped between the the Russian regime and the the, the Swedish regime for so long, um, Switzerland being surrounded by you know, Napoleon or Hitler. Uh, so yeah, I mean there's there was a, there was always these sort of competitive forces and these threats that. I think, in a way, was a was to some extent sort of a crucible for the formation of these countries, and and you know, and I think this element of paranoia um, actually contributes to their success and, and makes them sort of a, you know, how they've responded to that has been, I think, decisive in their formation. I mean, one of the things that uh, that we're all facing in Western countries at the moment is a, a kind of a breakdown of traditional institutions. Um, you seem to imply that smallness does at least help a society to knit itself together in this in this new environment. Well, I, I think the institutions are very important, but I think getting the economy right to begin with is very important because it's, you know, countries that are not successful, not su- not successful economically, it, it, it really places a, a great degree of hardship to, to get the institutions right. So, you know, these nations have been, you know, really, you know, leaders in terms of generating disposable income, which of course is, is the source of wealth in countries. And, you know, they've managed to achieve that because they've been very open and they're very export-driven, and, and that in turn was because they were very good at manufacturing high-valued goods, and, and, and because of that they had a high degree of spending and emphasis on research and, and education facilities to, to facilitate that. So, you know, you have to, it, it's really important to get all those things right before you start um, thinking about, you know, how, how do you actually pay for them, right? So. You know these countries were very good at these types of things, but yes, they you know they have in addition to that they've they've come through with very strong institutions, so, some of which are very 
sort of socially minded, you know, like the, the Scandinavian countries, which are very much probably from an American perspective, you, you'd consider them very left. Um, but there's other countries like Singapore and Switzerland, which are much more frugal and, and emphasize a, a high degree of self-reliance. So there's, again, different ways of doing it. But 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 you still have to get you know you still have to have the economy right. You, it's it's important to to be able to generate good high paying jobs and a strong robust middle class. Yeah, as uh, that that's one of the things that really stands out actually. That although one size small uh, fits all, uh, it's not one system fits all. There's a variety of different economic, social, and political models on display here. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, but there are similarities as well. So they, you know, on the human side, they're they're all meritocracies. So they have a deep belief in equal opportunity, not e- not equal outcome. But if if you look at their education system, the the public school choice is the predominant choice, and in fact, the private school avenue tends to be frowned upon. Um, and therefore, they have a common pathway where they're able to to share social norms and and, and ingrain social norms. And, and I think because of that, they, they do have this, um, together with these, these narrow, narrow degrees of separation, they have a much higher degree of trust and therefore lower friction in terms of their dealings with either on the political side or the, you know, conducting business with each other. So, and that sort of instills a greater sense of community versus the individual. Yeah, it's it's that's true in many of the examples, too. I mean, you mentioned Denmark there. That uh, it, I was quite surprised that this kind of pro-business, pro-enterprise element comes through very strongly there. That uh, you show how Denmark has been very skillful in aligning its progressive social agenda with the the business of actually making money. Yeah, well, the, I mean, all these countries have a, a different model to I mean, the, the sort of model that we're accustomed. And if you if you read sort of the typical Anglo-Saxon debate, is it's you know it's either you know the government is messes everything up and therefore it should be done by the private sector, or if you give it all to the private sector, you know, at some point they they mess it up, so you should regulate, and and so you have this this sort of brick throwing contest between the left and the right and it's, it seems to be sort of a zero-sum game and the countries that are featured in this book actually have decided on a very different model where they advocate more business and more markets but better government and and that's just a very different model altogether and i think it's one very refreshing model that that we can all look at and study and try to appreciate because i think you know, going forward, the the future will be very different to the past, and and you see a lot of you know really important issues coming forward. Whether they're you know things like pandemics cannot be sorted out by by private markets, things like immigration can't be sorted out by private markets. Healthcare is is it's incredibly difficult to deal with that deal with that um, with with private um, markets, etc. So free markets. So I, I think it's really hard to have you know uh, robust you know, social contracts and 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 a decent sort of civil society without having good government in in a number of important areas, but that doesn't mean you can't have you can't be pro business. So I think you know what's very unique about this book is it it really advocates a new model, which is one of um, pro business, but um, but just better government, and and all, and also being able to attract more qualified and, and better people into government is a very important feature. 
Yeah, as I say, with that with that Danish example, I was very struck by that, that this is a country which very much committed itself to being at the forefront of, of improving the, the environment uh, in Denmark, but it's also been at the forefront of entrepreneurship in that area. Uh, and that's kind of something which has a global imprint now. Absolutely. I mean, they have the biggest producer of windmills in the world with Vestas. They're also, you know, they're now becoming the, the global leader in terms of cloud storage and done in an environmentally friendly way where they have access to clean energy. And because it's a cooler climate and cold seawater, they're able to, you know, to provide cloud storage at a, at a you know, not just from a cost point of view, but also from an externality point of, point of view in a, in, a, in a much more advantageous way. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's one of the things, one of the lessons, actually, that I took away from uh, the book, which is fascinating, um, is that this ability almost to lean into elements of a society that are culturally specific actually seems to be part of the key to their success. So the Danish example uh, that we just used there, but, but also Finland's education system, uh, for example. No, that's right. And and. You know, one underestimates just how important it is to take a long-term view on these things. And, and I think that's probably also a very big difference between the success that sort of explains the success of these countries is that the sort of long-termism versus short-termism. And and in the case of any of these, these countries that have reformed education systems, you know, they all tell you that it's a 30-year ex experiment. I mean, it takes 30 years to get through one generation to see whether it works. And um, and we saw that with Singapore, with their reform in the education system, same with Finland, or in the case of the, 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 the Danish example of going from trying to reduce their dependency on fossil fuels and making a decision in the 1980s to go to renewables, which at the time any economist would, would have told you was completely nuts given the given the disparity, just how expensive the the green premium was. Uh, they embarked upon it anyway. And and lo and behold, you know, if you've seen what's happened with the cost of, of, of wind energy, you know, no one twenty years ago would have thought that it would be competitive with fossil fuels, but but it's it's now becoming that. And the same with solar. So but these were these were thirty year um, projects and 30-year decisions. And it was important to have a political system that stood by that and just didn't, you know, the problem with these majoritarian systems is that, you know, one party gets elected and then four years later they get kicked out and, and the, 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 you know, so the conquering party decides to reverse whatever efforts were made from the prior party. And it's it's really important in dealing with the problems that we just that we've been talking about that that you really have a long term effort because it just takes time to see it through and you have to really stick to it and um, I think part of the success of these countries is that they have they don't have this majority majoritarian political systems but they have this coalition system where they're able to probably better reflect the preferences of of different parties so in, in the case of the U S you probably have you know, at least two parties within the democratic system, say the Bernie Sanders coalition and then, you know, the, the Joe Biden coalition, or in the case of the Republican Party, you, you might have the, the Mitt Romney coalition and the Donald Trump coalition. And in these countries, you would have four parties. Um, and, and these four parties, because, of, you know, they're able to more clearly articulate their preferences of that specific party and therefore 
you know, enter into these longer-term engagements that, that are required to, to really make an impact in, in things like healthcare, education, uh, immigration, uh, environment, etc. These, these are not short-order things. Isn't the, isn't the danger of that system, though, that you don't, as you do in the American system or the British system, you don't have that ability to kick a government out, that whatever happens in an election, yes, you may get a, a different coalition put together, but essentially it's the same people all the time, and that, that effectively puts a gap between ordinary people and the kind of ruling class. Uh, you know, clearly, the, the the ability to change leadership so radically is 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 less likely with a coalition system. But you see, with the coalition systems, you see quite you know quite extreme changes in the coalition partners, and the message gets across. I mean, the the problem with the you know the system of republic, as we know, is that you know effectively the citizen, although although he's ultimately you know the the, the most powerful element of the entire system you know that person only votes once <laughs> every four years or, or three years or six years and that's that's all that's the the only time they actually exert that power and um it's you know it, it makes it quite difficult to um to really sort of uh, i mean you've seen what's happened for example with the, the american system where you've, you've effectively had gridlock for the last 20 years trying to to get more or less anything done so um I, I, I take your point, but I think on balance, um, I mean, well, the, the proof is in the pudding, if you like. I mean, if you look at the, the ability of the Danes to have done what they've done, it's quite extraordinary. Or the Finnish, for example, with their school system. And, and look, how, look how long the Americans and the British have been talking about reforming their school systems and how little has been done. I wonder, since the book um, was published, we've uh, been in a, a pandemic and uh, different countries in lockdown and so on. Um, I wonder how that's modified your thinking since you wrote the original book? I think it's actually, I think that it's more or less, um, it's accentuated the, the book and the analysis of the book. So I think if you you mentioned, for example, Israel. I mean, I, of course, with the pandemic, you have to probably you have to distinguish between the repression phase, which was, you know, pre-vaccine, and now we have the eradication phase. And and but when you look at, um, I think if you look at both phases, um, you know, it was it was quite interesting to see. I mean, first of all, this this point about experimentation. So if you take, for example, Sweden, which took the view that you could do this herd immunity. Um, and, and this would be the ideal, you know, the optimal way to get through this. And then you had countries like Singapore, which were very much trying to flatten the curve and you know, respond immediately to the situation. So you had a very high degree of experimentation, and um, and and through that, you you really saw, you know, ultimately which system was more effective. And now, in the case of eradication, of course, Israel is is really head and shoulders above having anyone right now. I think seventy percent of the population has been vaccinated, and then last week they started giving out this these um, COVID passports, which in, in title it basically validates that someone's had two vaccination shots. Um, so yeah, I think it's been I think it's been highly interesting to see, um, you know how these smaller countries have been much more adaptive and responsive to this, you know, this whole 
COVID situation. I suppose something like the pandemic, but also the the various shocks that we've been through over the last 10, 15 years, including uh, 2008. I mean, it does demonstrate that small open economies are extremely vulnerable uh, to those kind of global shocks. Um, how do you think that they learn the lessons from that? And, and is it just an inevitable part of being a small open economy? I think it is. I think I think these countries are fundamentally more vulnerable because because they're export driven. Um, they they are much more you know, sensitive to what's happening with global trade, and, and therefore, as a consequence of that, they have much more robust social systems. So that that's how they try to sort of um, sort of compensate for that. So. If you look at their unemployment systems, if you look at their pension systems, if you look at their healthcare system, et cetera, I think that's the basic, if you like, bargain with the people that, yes, we have, you know, we have much more outgoing economies where we're much more export driven, but by definition, that makes us more vulnerable. And the best thing we can do is to try to, you know, provide some sort of a buffer in the way of stronger, stronger social systems. So in the case of Denmark, for example, they have something called flex security, which is a, is a really just a phenomenal way of, of dealing with people who are, are caught between jobs, for example, and, and maybe need time to retrain and to to build up new skill sets or go back to school, etc. So, I think that's that's generally what you find with these cultures that they they, they tend to have these um, sort of stronger social contracts, if you like, to to compensate for greater degrees of vulnerability. And you do show at the end there is this danger of a ticking time bomb in many of these countries that uh, they have declining birth rates, rapidly expanding older populations. Uh, As you point out, that's storing up problems for the future, not least uh, something I know that you're very interested in, uh, the problem of pensions. Right. I mean, these are, I mean, these are, by the way, these are problems shared by, by all developed countries. So... Um, the ones you've just mentioned, and I think, I think that's the, that's maybe one of the key points that I think we we tend to have this sort of trajectory that the world will will sort of carry on the way it's been going in the past. But I, my personal view is the world will be very different to the one we've lived in the last thirty or forty years. And I think, you know, for example, climate. You know, either we get that right, or or there's an existential threat to you know there, there is no planet B. So. Um, you know, we see now, now with the pandemics, just how how difficult of a you know kind of a tsunami that's been to societies. But you know, this idea that living to be a hundred years old, you know, probably twenty years ago was considered to be a mathematical probability, but um, but now it looks like a you know it, it actually looks like a, a more than a distinct possibility. It's more like a likelihood. And 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 I was just talking to the head of the. Ontario Teachers Fund, and you know, he was telling me that the ratio of active teachers to retired teachers has gone from eight to one in 1980 to about 2.5 to one now. Just to give you an idea, and this is, you know, Ontario Teachers is considered to be one of the best performing pension funds in the world in Canada, um, and that's daunting. You know, that's really daunting to to see how are we going to, you know, how are we going to cope with someone who lives to be 100 years old? They they go to you know, they don't go to work until they're 25 and they retire at 65. So they have 40 years of 
working life or a hundred year life and and how does one pay for that and so there's a, we, we just had a discussion of a few weeks ago together with Mercer where we had the the best pension funds in the world Singapore Denmark the Dutch the Canadians uh, sitting around for the first time talking about these problems so yeah but that's a that's a big issue and and and, and we're and, and we have a world where capital doesn't cost anything doesn't yield anything so trying to get an annuity out of your savings pool is a very precarious situation right now so yeah these are these are problems that nobody had 30 years ago so i think it's a very different world going forward now you were hinting at it there but one of the things about this book is that it's not just something which is theoretical for you you're also trying to address these things in a very pragmatic way um, primarily through the the foundation of of sa nations um uh, tell us what the the idea was behind that and what you're up to now well there was no master plan so it was richard so i i'm sorry to disappoint you but we were we were just in the middle of, you know we did field research in each country meeting 20 to 30 people across the range of society and about halfway through in denmark i, I was meeting with the ceo of nova nordisk which is their, their the most valuable company and it's also the it's the largest um, foundation in europe um and you know he just came up with this idea that why don't we create sort of a movement around this and and the the name S8 came up which was sort of a pendant to the G7 and the G20 and um cuz we, we you know we had done analysis of these countries looking at various metrics like you know the, the competitiveness rankings for, issued by IMD and World Economic Forum and and these S8 countries have twice the level of competitiveness compared to the, the G20 and you know the the trajectory is very for, is improving while the larger countries are declining and so yeah the idea was to you know could we put together a group uh, you know of like-minded people around the uh, you know from these countries and and the thought experiment was well you have the most innovative countries in the world and you have the most collaborative countries in the world and um if you put them together uh, in a room then maybe you'll come up with some fresh and even bold ideas about how we can deal with some of these big issues yeah, I mean, you you used the word group there. You were talking about the the G seven, G twenty, and so on. Do do you think that that nations like the eight uh, that you have there would be able to act on the world stage in a way that was coordinated? We don't know yet. It's it's an experiment. It's it's not a governmental body, so it's it's something more akin to the way the World Economic Forum was founded. In fact. Jim Snob, who runs our Danish delegation, he's vice chair of the of the World Economic Forum, but he's you know he's the chair of Miller Maersk, which is Denmark's largest company, and also the chair of Siemens. But so we have several people that uh, that um, sort of on, on both fronts. But no, the, the, we're trying something very new, and the, the basic idea is we have about ten delegates from each country, so. Someone like Jim Staub put together a delegation, and the basic instructions were to, first of all, have people between the ages of 35 and 80, because we wanted to be intergenerational, because we are living to be 100 years old. So we we wanted to be able to reflect the preferences of of three generations. We we wanted to have about 60% from the private sector, 20% from government, and then 20% from academia and culture. 
And the 60% from industry, we wanted one-third unicorns and one-third dinosaurs like Miller Maersk and one-third um, small, medium-sized companies. And so, you know, you have the, uh, you know, the, the head of a, a museum, you have a, an important member of parliament, we have the head of the largest pension fund, we have chairman of Siemens, we have um, the, 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 the CEO of Orsted, um, you know, the, these types of people. And we have, of course, there's, uh, I think there's about 30% women. Um, I just spoke today to the vice chairman of Nova, Nova Nordisk, Marianne Philip. So yeah, it's, so it's meant to be a, a really interesting cross-section of people. Uh, and that's just a Danish example, but we have one for Singapore, we have one for Netherlands, we have one for Switzerland. And we've just, uh, we've had uh, our first meeting, which went really well. And, and now we've had a, we've kicked off a series called Big Lessons from Small Nations, where, as I mentioned, we, we've, we've done one around pension funds. And last week we did one around the vaccination program. Um, in, in Israel. So we're trying to just highlight areas of, of you know, in, incredible relevance to all of us where these small countries are, are really at the cutting edge and have arrived at the future first. And, and we're, we're putting together people who, not consultants or the PR people or, or company spokespeople, but real hands-on people. So we had the head of the Sheba Hospital, which is Israel's largest hospital. We had the head of Clarit, which is the largest HMO in Israel. We had the former Minister of Health. We had the representative of the WHO. We had, um, you know, the, the president of IFO. And, you know, we, we just had a very open, frank, candid um, dialogue about what it takes to to vaccinate people as quickly as possible and save lives and get back to normality. And I mean, you use the the word, uh, the phrase "cutting edge." There, how how do these countries avoid that cutting edge being blunted by the reality of size and power? That uh, although uh, you say that economic power is being decoupled is is decoupling from size, nevertheless, you know the rise of China, the rise of India, uh, these countries with a billion people uh, in terms of population, they are going to be the future how do the how do the small countries uh, deal with uh, with just with that problem of size so po political power is not decoupled from size um, and uh, we have this situation of course where you have China and you know the United States Russia etc and they will for the foreseeable future be the the world's you know preeminent powers but I think what we're trying to argue is that it, these multilateral organizations should not be about political power. It should be about excellence. It should be about problem-solving capability. Uh, it should be about imagination and, and boldness and coming up with new and, and effective solutions. So, um, you know, historically, these multilateral organizations have been a function of political power, but political power doesn't necessarily translate into excellence. It's just bullying and pushing people around so just we we just don't think that that's the right way going forward we think it's it really should be about excellence and and you know coming up with the best solutions so that's sort of the way we think about it and unfortunately most of these big multilateral organizations first were created um you know with the support of great britain and then the united states inherited that and of course, with this whole Trump era that's been cast into doubt, you know, the extent that um, 
you know, the continuity and, and, and also just the alignment of interest. I mean, if you look at, if you look at these big countries right now, there's a, it's difficult to imagine that, the, that a sort of a consensus enlightened solutions will be coming from them, given, given where we are. Um, that could change, of course, but uh, we just felt there was a need to step up. So the book is Too Small to Fail, Why Small Nations Outperform Larger Ones and How They're Reshaping the World. It's written by my guest, James Briding, and published by Harper Business. Uh, but for now, James, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you for having me, Richard. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Demir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Aldous, saying thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.